The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Saturday, May 2nd, 2020, the farthest you will ever be from May Day. Boris Johnson has given his new son a middle name, named after two of the doctors who saved him for, from coronavirus. That's actually well, kind of sweet. Good. That's such good. I, I had exactly the opposite reaction. I was going to say that's such good spin. <laughs> Kim Jong-un has resurfaced, state media says, although nobody has managed, no outside media have managed to confirm that he visited a factory on Friday, but they released lots of photographs. And Kate, we have murder hornets. Yeah, apparently, according uh, to the New York Times, um, two inch long Asian giant hornet species known as the murder hornet uh, was sighted in Washington and they have arrived again and are back and capable of killing humans. Their venom and stinger make for an excruciating combination that victims have likened to hot metal driving into their skin. And I love true crime and I kind of like insects, but I really hate this. <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, I mean, I, I just <laughs> want to say, I, I think like just what we needed, we've had this, you know, we have a plague we have a plague of locusts, uh, and now we have an invasive murder hornet species. No, you are not allowed to have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we have Yasha Monk, who is camped out at the cabin in the woods with baby cannon. Um, Yasha, welcome to uh, in lieu of fun properly this time. Thank you very much. It's uh, I've been enjoying the cabin. I'm today the, the the sun is out. Everybody can see the beautiful background here. Um, so yeah, um, thanks for having me. Um, Yasha, you, you were like we got yelled at last Sunday for by a very cranky commentator on YouTube who was very upset that we improperly uh, that we let you that we squandered our time with you on the show. Um, yeah. And so well, to, to, today people are going to get more of me than they've bargained for. So there you go. You, you're you're yeah, making up for it right now. To that very cranky commentator, um, you know, Yasha was an impromptu guest last week. Um, but uh, this week he is the proper guest. Uh, so last week we did focus on the actual guest, Sarah Longwell. But today uh, Yasha is here in his own right. So Yasha... I want to start with uh, a question, a comparative, um, uh, a comparative political response to uh, um, uh, COVID-19 question. You are a native of Germany. You went to school in the UK. Uh, you are uh, you live here. You have a house in Italy. Where? How do you understand uh, the leadership and outcome differences between these various countries in terms of COVID-19? 
well, I mean, since you make it, made it biographical, I guess uh, I was born in a place that has had a very functional response. I went to college in a place that had a reasonably dysfunctional response. And now I'm a proud citizen of a country that is screwing up bigly. Um, so I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm a little you're, you're on the that, big on the steep I'm, decline in, on, in, on, on, on the bigly decline yeah um no look i mean i think all governments have failed to some extent no government was really prepared for what we're facing uh, every government was far too slow in responding that was true in germany as well i remember having a, a twitter exchange uh, also colloquially known as a shouting match with a german government minister in early march who was saying We've only just had the first death from Corona. This is all not so bad. It's kind of like the flu. You know, why are you guys worried? That's a German government minister who's not from an extremist party, who's not, um, you know, a populist or anything like that, but who clearly did not understand the stakes even at a very late stage. So the German government was late in responding. But once they understood what the stakes were, they've had sensible political leadership. Angela Merkel is a unifier by, by instinct. She tries to unify the country. She's been very sensible in her response to it. Um, the country has managed to ramp up its testing very quickly, so we actually have a much better sense of what's going on. And is now at a stage where, um, you know, the, we're really on the downward trend of the disease and we can, you know, they can start to open up the economy, open up schools to some extent. There are fears that will shoot back up to R0 being over one, which is to say um, to the uh, incidence of a disease spreading again. Um, so I don't think that uh, the situation is by any means solved in Germany, but it is much, much better than two other countries. So second country you asked about, I mean, I know you all will start with Boris Johnson, so you will know about that. Um, Boris Johnson was in a hospital in the beginning of March shaking hands with uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, he, uh, you know, was consistently downplaying the seriousness of the disease. Um, by the way, uh, a popular talking point on the left in the United States is that uh, uh, the US is dealing particularly badly with us because of our healthcare system. I think there's some merits to that claim, but of course the single payer system in Britain has not performed very well at all either. It has very limited capacity um, and the death rates uh, for people have been shockingly high. So Britain has been more sensible than the United States, less erratic than the United States. Um, I believe at this point a significantly lower death toll per capita than the United States. I'm not entirely sure on that, um, but it has been far from far from good. And then the United States, of course, uh, you know, we should be able to master this very, very well. When uh, my university, Johns Hopkins, um, did a, a study of the preparedness of global health systems a couple of years ago, they put the United States right on top because uh, we have excellent scientists, we have a lot of state capacity, we have a lot of hospitals, we have a lot of ICU beds. But frankly, the federal government has, you know, veered in its response in a crazy way and essentially given up on putting in place the kind of test, trace and quarantine regime uh, that we need in order to get out of this in a sensible way. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm despairing about what's going on in the States right now. Um, when you say you're despairing, um, one of the weird things about the States relative to all other countries, save Canada, um, is the relatively uh, high degree to which states will be very different from one another. And I don't have the impression that Saxony and you know, Bavaria are implementing 
despite the sort of formal formalism of the German Federated Republic, I like I don't have the impression that in fact those decisions are being made at the state level. But the difference between you know Arkansas and California is immense. And so I'm I'm interested for your thoughts on sort of comparative European versus American federalism here. Mm. Is the right comparison between the United States and Germany, or is the right comparison between the United States and the EU? And then you have as much, you know, diversity within the EU as, you know, th that actually describes something like the diversity of of response within the United States with the important proviso, of course, that Donald Trump has no analog in the EU. Right, right. Uh, well, let me think through this. I mean, first of all, um, it's true that the United States is actually a much more federal country uh, than Germany. And Germans think of themselves as a federal country. And when they hear that the United States is a federal country and they think it's similar, um, but they vastly underestimate the extent of political difference you have uh, between U.S. states. So the idea that most people who are in jail um, have been sentenced according to state criminal laws, the idea that you have a death penalty in some U.S. states but not in other U.S. states is very, very alien to, to Germans and to Europeans more broadly. No European country has that amount of uh, decentralized power. Um, uh, the same about the welfare state. I mean, Massachusetts has a welfare state that's actually substantially similar to, to European countries in many ways. Mississippi has a much, much, much less substantial welfare state. Uh, that's not something that Europeans sort of instinctively understand. It's much more extreme than what we have, certainly in Germany. Um, so I think when it comes to uh, the current uh, differences in terms of how people deal with that, you might put it down to that, but 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 it's a little bit more complicated because when it comes to public health measures, uh, the relevant decision makers in Germany are local and state level as well. Um, so uh, for a while there was, you know, a football match that was going to be played in Berlin and the chancellor implored the government of Berlin, of Berlin to cancel it, but it was not in her gift to cancel it. She had to rely on the mayor of Berlin in order to do that. Um, so there is sort of the same coordination problem. The difference is that after a week or two of chaos at the beginning, Germany has managed to coordinate um, because it has a more consensual political culture um, uh, and, and frankly, because it has a more competent government. Um, what we're seeing in the United States is just a complete lack of that coordination um, and a lack of the federal government uh, at, 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 at trying to lead the country. I think if Donald Trump uh, was a very different kind of president and if he made it very clear what he thinks states should do and um, try to do that in a way that, that bridges partisanship, you might have gotten a much more consistent uh, set of actions from different US states. Now, my fear is, uh, here's, here's the reason why, this, why the analogy to the EU doesn't hold, which is that for all of the power of the EU, nation states are way more powerful than the European Union. They have more financial resources, they have the public health authorities, they have the army, they have all of the kinds of things you need in order to actually have a sensible response. Um, so even for this huge variety between different nation states and the EU is sort of kind of coordinating but not doing much, and you might think that's kind of similar to the federal government versus the US states. Um, the point is that individual European nations are capable of policing the borders and deploying the resources to build their own test and trace regimes. I'm very skeptical that US states can do the same thing. They certainly can't stop people from other states coming in. So even if they manage to build an effective regime, 
and they control the virus. You can have visitors coming in every day who re-import the virus. Um, and I just don't think that, you know, even Massachusetts or New York State has uh, the money, the resources, the trust in the population, the ability to reach its citizens to, for example, get near universal buy-in to an app that would inform people if somebody uh, they've been in contact with has COVID-19. So can I can I kind of break in just for a second, which is I just kind of want to make the point that like it, this was I feel like this is kind of like doubling down on what we heard from Seth yesterday, which was kind of just like how different that like he's coming from like tiny state of Rhode Island and he was the tre he's the general treasurer and he kind of came on and talked about state budgets and was just talking about like the way that the federal system is kind of playing out in terms of bargaining for PPE, um, in terms of bargaining for um, various types of like, of like, um, of for ventilators and like kind of just pitting people against these like entities against each other. I, I am, I'm skeptical just because of scale and, um, and like just the socialization of the country and the culture of the country that like, of course, I don't even think it's a fair comparison to compare Germany to the United States. Like the scale is just enormous. Like it just like, it's just like you have different, not just like from a federalist perspective, but like, as Ben said, Arkansas is not California, is not New York, is not Alaska. Like they're just such different, different places. Here's the other thing I kind of want to raise, which I feel like people do not talk about often enough when they talk about state governments, which is like, for example, Cuomo just said, like officially closed K through 12 schools for the rest of the year, right? And like, I'm from upstate Western New York and they've had very, 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 very few cases. And his, I would imagine that his decision statewide to close all of the schools is based around New York City. Um, and it's really kind of this, like this very interesting moment of, of which we've always had this moment, which is like the, the town versus town versus country, like town in the country. And, but like state gover governors having a really hard time pleasing both, like saying the right things for the electorate in the country and the right things for the electorate in the city. But now it's like the policy changes are just, absolutely structurally different. Um, I just kind of wonder, what do you think that this means for federalism coming out of all of this? I, I have, I've been trying to kind of play with this idea for a while since all of this started. Um, I just think it's revealed so many tensions between the idea of a, of a federal government versus individual state governments versus them all being kind of beholden to, you know, the decentralization is just super interesting. So I'm just curious what you think. Yeah. Um, well, a couple of words. The first is that I think, you know, I'm less worried about people making slightly different decisions around whether to have schools open or, you know, for example, whether you should have a mask. I mean, you know, now uh, I'm in rural Virginia you know, people wearing masks is sort of irrelevant because, you know, like you just don't encounter people that closely um, and you can really just be out and about and the likelihood of being within six feet of somebody is very, very low. That's obviously very different when you're talking about New York City or even Central Park. Um, you know, the same may be true that, you know, whether or not schools should be open depends a lot on the local infection rates and they're going to vary hugely between Alaska and Arkansas and New York State. I think, I think, I think that's absolutely right. 
Um, what I do worry about is that, you know, every country which is managing to reopen life and the economy to some extent at the moment, and there's now a good number of countries that are doing that without a huge resurgence of cases, and we'll see whether how long they can sustain that, um, has some kind of national system in place um, to make sure that we drive up testing, to make sure that we trace people who've been exposed to this, to make sure that people are quarantined. And the complete abdication of the federal government in its responsibility to do that, I think it's crazy. Um, and, and I don't think on like a sensible test, trace, and quarantine regime, uh, the, the, the sort of differences in lifestyle between Alaska and Arkansas and New York are as relevant um, as they are on questions about, you know, do you have to wear a mask and, 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 and should the local schools open? Now, in terms of sort of federalism generally, um, look, I'm a, I'm a little cynical about this. I think that sort of like Supreme Court activism, um, you know, it is a very, very partisan issue that doesn't flip moment to moment, but it flips over sort of decades. So, you know, liberals uh, for a very long time loved the idea of an activist Supreme Court because a lot of the politics wasn't very liberal and the Supreme Court uh, tended well, to have liberal Well, it gave us Roe v. Wade. It gave us Brown v. versus Board of Education. It gave it us was... very important things. But now suddenly liberals are starting to say, well, you know, an activist Supreme Court is really terrible and that's the worst kind of thing. It's an affront to democracy um, because right now uh, it's giving us Citizens United and all kinds of uh, decisions that are going on on the other side because um, it's dominated by conservatives. Um, I think there's something similar with federalism. Now, obviously, given the history of the Civil War and so on, um, there's something slightly more hardwired about the, the sort of right wing uh, sympathy and attraction towards federalism and the left-wing skepticism of it. Um, but, but I do think that we might see that start to flip as there are you know, a number of very popular states that have very robustly uh, democratic control um, or control by the Democratic Party on the one hand, uh, but a Senate that will probably continue to be dominated by uh, Republicans uh, for a good long while. Um, you're going to start to see uh, liberals becoming more and more attracted to federalism. Um, but I don't think the underlying mix of advantages and disadvantages has changed a lot. I think, um, you know, there's always been some real advantages to federalism, but also real limits as to what you can delegate to the states um, and a real need for an energetic central government. I just want to say in the current environment, federalism is the only thing we got going for us right now. I mean, can you I've, imagine? I can think you so. Can you imagine what this situation would look like if we did not have the counterweight against the federal government of Mike DeWine and Gavin Newsom and and uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo and and Gretchen Whitmer? And I think that like the case study that we have going on right now in how federalism is a uh, you know is a uh, accountability mechanism for national power is super powerful and you know like every day i wake up and i think thank god and i live in the place that's the least federalist in the united states washington dc right where we are subject to plenary congressional control and home rule to the extent they let us have it which is to say functionally quite a lot and every day i wake up subject to the rule of a sane government rather than to the rule of the White House, which I can walk to. And that is a miraculous thing. 
I mean, look, look, given that the president is Donald Trump, obviously right now, the more federalism, the better. Um, I, I, I think that's a slightly short-termist way of thinking about it. I think- Can we also um, just say, I've always been so confused with the term federalism because like, it sounds like in my mind, like I know it's a federation like of like states, but it always like federal, the feds always meant the national government. And so I've always just like, and it means the op, yeah, and it's exactly, it's like the most confusing term. And like, I actually am kind of like, Maybe like when you like when we say about like this is like so good for federalism, but like what is the point of having like like what is the what is the federal government? What is the national government given us lately is, I guess, kind of also like how I'm feeling coming out of this. Um, I just don't know how I just, Obamacare and Obamacare. drone strikes. Yeah, well, right. But that's great. Thank <laughs> you, Ben. Killed a, lot of, <laughs> killed a lot of terrorists. All right. Speaking of Canada, I want to introduce and get introduced to a very cool person who is joining us, uh, I believe, though I'm not sure, from Montreal. Um, yeah. And Pauline Brock has, uh, is probably our most face faithful viewer. She is on every day on In Lieu of Fun. This is the first time she has ever posed a question. And so I want to ask Pauline Brock, who the <laughs> heck are you? <laughs> Am I muted or unmuted? You're mute. You're unmuted. You're. We hear you loud and clear. Oh, I'm okay. Um, I'm just a grandmother uh, in Montreal. I, you know, I'm addicted to the internet. I'm addicted to politics, and that's it. <clears throat> Excellent. And are you? Uh, are you a uh, I, I take from your question that you're Jewish. So yeah. are you part of that legendary Montreal Jewish Anglo community that, that's pre-76? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Although I don't really have much in common with them. Um. <laughs> I just answered on the census, Pauline, my, all of my extended relatives, I don't even know if this counts, but all I know about mm -hmm. my extended relatives on my maternal grandfather's side, they all came from French Canada. Which I like oh. to, what I think explains a little bit of my weirdness, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, we, we have very um, distinctive politics here, but um, I, generally I like the French people, the French Canadians. Um, most of my contemporaries would probably disagree with that, but I find them to be very, uh, in day to day personal uh encounters they're very civilized they're very nice friendly people they're not weird at all except well for their politics but that's something else <laughs> so uh, what's your question my question has to do with um, um jews and uh how a jewish person can be racist can not want immigration like stephen miller can uh, come out with things saying, oh, I don't, this isn't the country I grew up in, and it's all, all the populist stuff. How can a Jewish person who uh, grew up like under the shadow of the Holocaust, and that's exactly how we got that thing, how can a Jewish person hold these views? I've never understood that, and Yasha was the only one who was able to explain to me about the Irish backstop, so I'm hoping he can work some magic with this too. 
<laughs> I, I forgot for... everything about VRS backstop, so don't ask me to explain yeah, that again. It's um, <laughs> from uh, one of uh, your podcasts. I never understood it until I listened to that. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, well, it's uh... a. Th th thanks for thanks for uh, speaking up finally, and uh, do it again <laughs> soon. Okay. So, Yasha, so, like, what is this? Like, you know, I think like. Colleen's question gets to something deep, which is if there was if there was one community that was consistently opposed to authoritarian populism historically, it is the Jewish community. And now we have, you know, the Likud party in Israel has sort of gone all in for it. The Orthodox community in the United States is pretty Trumpy, although in a very transactional sort of way. Um, and the Jewish, broader Jewish community's outrage about Hungary and Poland is not quite what you would expect it to be. And so I'm interested in your, you know, you're the great theoretician of democratic uh, uh, deconsolidation. What's going on with the Jews? Well, let me take a very long run up to this, which is that first of all, um, I think I, I recognize Pauline from my from my Twitter feed. I um, posed a question this morning. I was doing a, 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 a TV hit in Britain on the sort of main evening news, and um, uh, you know, my hair is sort of quarantine chaotic. My hair is always chaotic, but it was particularly uh, chaotic today. And I was wondering, should I shave it all off? Should I, um, uh, you know, should I try and have a sensible haircut? Or do I just own the crazy? Um, and, and I believe it was Pauline who, who wrote under that poll, which, by the way, was heavily for Own the Crazy. So this is now part of my brand. There you go. Um, she said it would break her heart if I shaved off the hair, which, um, which swayed me. So, you know, um, I did not expect to, 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 be, to be united with Pauline here in, on, on in lieu of fun. But, um, and that was an excellent question. Um, so, look, I mean, the first thing to say slightly in defense of the Jews is that uh, Jews have always been uh, heavily democratic voting in the United States and they continue to be as heavily democratic voting uh, now as they have been in the past. There's always this question about whether Jews are gonna start voting uh, more Republican, um, in part because they do do better socioeconomically than the middle of a population, in part because there are some obvious tensions uh, between different parts of a democratic coalition, so Muslims, are heavily democratic, Jews are heavily democratic for obvious reasons there are some conflicts between Jews and Muslims even in this country. Um, and so there's always this question of whether Jews are gonna start voting uh, on the right. Um, and that hasn't happened, right? I mean, Jews continue to be, uh, I, I think with like some exceptions of very small religious groups, the most overwhelming democratic religious group in the United States. Um, and so, uh, so, so this is not true of most Jews. Um, now, uh, of course, Jews are heavily represented in uh, the Trumpist movement as well. And it's partially because they do do quite well in general. And so, you know, they're very heavily represented in the anti-Trump movement, but also heavily represented in the Trump movement. They're very heavily overrepresented, by the way, in the people who were on the Republican side, on the conservative side, but who couldn't stomach uh, Trump. So if you think of some of the bravest voices that have spoken up, over the last years that you could have expected to be on Trump's side, but who've actually taken a very principled line. There's been a lot of Jews among them. But Pauline is absolutely right. There are people, uh, including obviously Steve Miller and many others, um, who are going right along with, uh, uh, with a Trumpist project. And I think the answer to that is very, very simple, which is that 
um, you know, every community, every religious group, every ethnicity, every culture is capable of uh, racial and religious hatred. Um, I think right now in the United States, there are people who want to emphasize the structural nature uh, of racism. And I think there is a structural element to racism, but we want to say racism is exclusively structural. And therefore, the only people who can be racist are whites and they can only be racist towards non-whites. Um, you know, I think that unfortunately is too simplistic a view of a world. Uh, there are many immigrants who are deeply racist. There are many immigrants uh, who are themselves people of color who are deeply racist against other uh, groups of color. Um, there are African-Americans, by the way, who are racist against Jews, as we've seen with some of the attacks in uh, New York City. Uh, and despite the long history of suffering, sadly, there are many Jews who are capable of the same bigoted, ignorant, uh, racial and religious hatred as any other group uh, in the world. Um, I see that, uh, Ben, you're rerunning my uh, uh, my poll here. I think um, this is not, you know, this is a much better sample than your Twitter feed because like there are no retweets or anything. This is actually a sample of people who care enough about you to, uh, uh, to you know, join a Zoom conference with you. So I think it's a special, and I just want to point out that screw it, it's a pandemic, letting it let it grow is is really winning overwhelmingly at this point. Um, so uh, you know, there was no. I just want to emphasize there was no bias in the formulation of the question or answers here. Are you still there? I'm still there. Yeah, I I, I finished my point, but we can, uh, you know, I can I can I can <laughs> go on, or we can discuss my hair. All right. So far, we have a hundred percent consensus on within one minute on like we still have uh, five or six people who haven't voted. Uh, so if you haven't voted on Yasha's hair, you still have a chance here. You know, um, let me share one of the one of the deep frustrations. I mean, I, I'm sort of assuming that nobody, you know, that it's not going to be on the internet forever, which it is going to be, I know, so never mind. But um, one of the deep injustices of being a, a balding man is that you have a simultaneous problem of too little hair and too much hair. You know, there's too little hair for you not to look bald, but the more hair you have and the longer it is, the more bald you look. It's really just, uh, you know, Alanis Morissette should write a song I just want. It. I just want to point out that as somebody who is not balding, but who has grayed very quickly, and I think you can probably see this at this hour, my left eyebrow, which is showing up on your right, oh yeah, it's has, like a little is, most, is is mostly gray. My right eyebrow has not grayed at all. My hair is mostly gray. So I am hoping to have one holy gray eyebrow and one holy brown eyebrow. I think that would be very striking looking. That, that would look pretty good. Yeah, just saying. You can always um, do it artificially. Um, Gerhard Schroeder, who um, uh, I'm going to say for legal safety, did not um, uh, dye his hair ever. Uh, at some point, while he was chancellor of Germany, um, sued various journalists and private individuals, I believe, as well, um, for, for claiming that he had dyed his hair. So, um, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can choose not to emulate Gerhard Schroeder and, uh, and dye one of, the, one of your eyebrows brown if you want to do that. All right. I'm getting a whole bunch of people challenging my claim that I am not balding here. Um, and uh, from, That's yeah, so from, rude. Ted, from Ted Gilchrist to Nicole Goldberg. So I want to say I keep my hair very short. Uh, my hairline has receded a little bit over the last few years. Um, but if I actually let my hair grow, 
there's plenty of hair. Uh, I'm be fine with balding. In fact, I actually keep my hair cropped so short that people like you think I'm balding, but I'm actually, I've got a fair bit of hair. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of receding going on, not shy about it. I can even measure it because there's one hair. Um, yeah, there's, thank you, Nicole. There's plenty of hair to do a comb over, but I am confident enough in my hairline that I don't do that, you see? Anyway, all right. Meanwhile, enough about hair, guys. Let's ask Yasha some questions about democratic deconsolidation. So Yasha, you are the great theoretician of democratic deconsolidation. You were arguing for it when it was an eccentric theory that you were, uh, you know, I, when I, I remember when people, when I first heard of you, it was like in the context of, is Yasha Monk, does he really believe that? Or is he just trying to make a splash in his dissertation, right? That was the, the way people talked about democratic deconsolidation. Now everybody believes in democratic deconsolidation. And last weekend, when we were uh, uh, sitting in the cabin together, you were saying, I actually feel pretty good about uh, the chances of unseating Donald Trump uh, and that is not broadly speaking what one would predict from the theoretician of democratic deconsolidation. So I wanna break some news here. Is Yasha Monk optimistic about democracy in the United States? Well, you know, so the first thing I guess, uh, uh, I, this may be sort of, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think I'm a pessimist. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a very, uh, upbeat and happy person, and uh, I, you know, I'm not the sort of I, I. I tend to prefer not to worry about problems. You know, my only fights with my mom are about the fact that, um, you know, she like sees all the potential problems seven years in the future about everything, and I think, ah, it's going to be fine, and if a problem arises, we'll solve it then. Um, so I never see myself as a pessimist. Um, I, I, I think though that there's a tendency in life to think that if something uh, has been the case for a long time, it'll always be the case, a status quo bias. Um, and there's also a tendency to think that, you know, if something seems unsustainable, but it's been sustained, then I guess we're wrong about it being unsustainable and uh, it, it'll keep going on like that. And I think the sort of couple of moments in my life when I've really been out ahead of other people uh, because I don't share those instincts. So, you know, I was seeing all of these warning signs about democracy around the world, including deep dissatisfaction with uh, both particular governments and the democratic system as a whole in opinion polls, including uh, fewer and fewer people going out to vote in many countries, including growing support for extremist parties, um, all kinds of warning signs. And everybody said, ah, it's going to be fine. And I thought, well, what if it's not? What if we actually take those warning signs seriously? And that's how I came on to Sort of the idea of democratic deconsolidation earlier than others. I mean, in a similar way, I think I was out a little bit ahead, not that much ahead, but 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 a little bit ahead of other people in taking COVID-19 very seriously and wrote that article about canceling everything. Um, again, because I think there was just a bias of people saying, ah, you know, there's been past diseases and they've all gone away. Um, and all of my life, things have been normal. There's never been a pandemic period where we suddenly have to, you know, socially distance and find refuge in uh, various lovely cabins. Um, so, uh, so this can't happen this time either. And I was just looking at the facts. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an expert on this, but I was looking at the rate of growth around the world and thinking, well, why, 
why should the US be any different when these other countries? Um, so, um, so I'm not a pessimist actually. And when it comes to populism, um, you know, I, I think people are very tempted by it. I think it is a powerful rhetorical tool that'll stay with us. Um, but I also think that when people are actually exposed to populist governments for long enough, and particularly when all of the abstract warnings that people like me make about it, uh, saying that it's going to really impact the lives of ordinary people if we have a government that doesn't re respect experts, that uh, captures independent institutions, that politicizes everything, that's incompetent. Um, once those warnings really hit home and people see them in their own daily lives, as uh, unfortunately, tragically, they are right now in the context of the coronavirus, um, I think they'll get sick of it. And I think they'll say, I've had enough of it. Um, the question is whether at that point, they're still capable of voting out the government or whether as in Hungary and in Venezuela and in other countries, um, the populist leaders have taken on enough power that uh, the elections are no longer uh, even remotely free and fair. Um, I think in the United States, we are reaching the point where people really want to get rid of Donald Trump. I think he's never been as popular as some people think. Um, uh, and I think at this point, people are, are really want a unifier, really want somebody who'd run a competent administration. And though I worry about uh, the fairness uh, of the elections that we have coming up, um, I think that they're clearly going to be uh, sufficiently free and fair that if uh, Democrats win a huge landslide uh, victory, uh, Donald Trump uh, will duly leave the White House. And uh, I think the chances of that are higher right now than they've been at any point in the last three or four years. I hope you're right. <laughs> I I, I'm not saying, by the way, just to be clear, I I'm not saying this is guaranteed at all. It's absolutely possible that Donald Trump will win. But I think that the reasons for hope are higher than they've been in the last three or four years. Sorry. And, and how do you assess the person of Joe Biden uh, in, in that regard? I mean, I can argue this both ways, right? Which is to unseat a charismatic incumbent, you actually need a charismatic challenger. I could also argue, and I think I may believe that actually the sort of Warren Harding return to normalcy, um, uh, boring porch, front porch campaign in which Joe Biden says as little as possible and is functions basically as a uh, representative of the generic Democrat in the in the in the polling and he doesn't have to be inspiring he doesn't have to be smart he doesn't uh, uh, even have to be he certainly doesn't have to be rhetorically clever um, he doesn't have to have a vision except not Trump uh, and kind of back to normal um, is actually somewhere close to ideal in terms of what people want. And so if you were thinking of the prototypical, the, the sort of perfect way to run against the declining popularity authoritarian populist at the point at which he's, you know, you still have the democratic institutions to do it, but he's not um, but he's past his, he's ebbing in, in his, the excitement that he induces and people are kind of getting the message. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer a, a figure that's exciting in his own right or is the basic message the return to a status quo ante that was decent and reasonable? Look, I mean, if I could, you know, run Barack Obama 2008 
um, you know, over and over in uh, every election in every country I would, um, you know, but the problem with Barack Obama in 2008 is, um, as, as one statesman I know uh, puts it, but he's a non-transferable asset. Um, it's just, you know, you just cannot emulate Barack Obama. He's a once in a generation political talent who is capable of uniting uh, inspiration with moderation, uh, uniting, mobilizing his base with um, reaching people who are often quite hostile to Isn't Democrats. Isn't that a problem with politics and not the non-transferability of Barack Obama? Like, isn't it a problem that we look for, like, that, like, our perfect candidate is a Barack Obama and not that our perfect candidate, like, not that we can, like, I don't know, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just kind of, no, I'm no. like, I'm, like, listening and I'm just kind of, like, but this is, it's not fair. It's not fair that we have, to, like, the Democrats, and, like, to be fair, I remember so vividly the 2004 convention where he gave, like, he gave the mm. um, DNC convention's, like, keynote. And my friend uh, at the time who was a, a dem, uh, a dem, I'm not going to say operative anymore, but like a dem worker. Uh, and he was like, this person will never be elected ever. His middle name is Hussein. This person will never be elected. He's black to like the, like, and this was like a super liberal. And I was like, no, that is like, that is the mix. What he's got is the mix that he's like got the Kennedy thing. He's got it. Like everyone who's like, he has this gene, but like, that's not what we actually, like, why should everyone have to have a special magic power for like consolidating people through stump speeches? I just don't feel like that's actually a very good, like a very, like very good, like a very ultimately very like transferable talent to the what actually it takes to be president, for example. Look, 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 I, I, I agree with that. Um, but that's the nature of democratic politics. I mean, you got to be able to reach people and you got to be able to inspire people. Um, and you got to be able to, to, to build that coalition. There's different ways of doing that. But, you know, incredible charisma uh, as Barack Obama had um, uh, paired with very shrewd strategic choices, uh, we should say. Um, is one way of doing that. But but actually, uh, you know, in, in a way, though, is the long way around to, to the answer to Ben's question, which is that I think um, Joe Biden may be capable of actually, uh, I'm, I'm going to be super optimistic here for a moment, uh, winning a bigger landslide uh, victory than Barack Obama in 2008. Um, uh, and the reason is that he has some advantages of his own in this particular moment. Um, you know, I've thought for a long time that if somebody could run in 2016, in 2020, sorry, and I've been arguing this for, for two or three years at this point, on the promise that, you know, you vote for me and you can go back on a Monday night to go into a bar and drinking with your buddies um, and you can talk about football rather than about the president of the United States, you have my vote. I think, no, so, you know, so, so, so the candidate people, who actually ran on something like that was uh, Michael Bennett from Colorado, who made the campaign promise, if you elect me, I promise you won't have to think about the president for two weeks at a time. And I thought that was the most awesomely excellent campaign promise. So and good. It, and it so achieved great. I, 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 may, I may or may not have talked to him at some point. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that. I mean, it's uh, just like- it's but, just so but, 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 but look, it's hard to break through for, uh, you know, a, a, a moderate candidate with 
uh, middling name recognition. I, I like Michael Bennett very, very much. Um, it's not a surprise to me that he wasn't able to break through ultimately. But the point about Joe Biden is, um, you know, we could all sort of wish for things and so on and so forth. I think that Joe Biden can can deliver that promise. I think that most people, uh, you know, around here, Ben, which is clearly Trump country, you see, you know, Trump signs everywhere. I'm not saying that Joe Biden is going to have a huge amount of a vote here. Uh, but I think people can look at Joe Biden and say, you know what, I don't like him. I don't agree with him. But he doesn't scare me. You know, I think right. my country is going to be just fine if he becomes president. And I think, by the way, that's probably going to demobilize some of the people around here who are less politically inclined um, and who are not, not scared of somebody like Joe Biden. I think it's even more yeah, important not- for the many people that Sarah Longwell was talking about who are educated Republican women in the suburbs, some working class Republican women who see all the things that are wrong with Donald Trump, who who don't want our country to be as divided and as nasty uh, as it is right now, who are going to be really angry come November about our failure, unfortunately, it looks like, to deal with the coronavirus uh, sensibly. And I think it'll matter that um, somebody like like Joe Biden doesn't scare them, but they look at Joe Biden and they look at the team he's going to put together, hopefully, and say, you know what? That guy's going to be competent. He knows how to govern. He's been a vice president for eight years very well. He's been a senator for a long time. I wish and he'd gotten elected. He doesn't hate me. He respects me. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I got, I, I got to say, I mean, you, the the reference to the vote in Shenandoah County, Virginia, is interesting because I think it, it's been a while since I looked at the 2016 data from Shenandoah, but I believe it was around 70 percent for Trump, 30 percent for Hillary. Joe Biden is not going to win Shenandoah County, Virginia, but you could imagine him getting 35% of the vote in Shenandoah County. You could imagine there being fewer votes in absolute terms for Donald Trump in Shenandoah than there were. And there are certainly fewer Trump-Pence yard signs today than there were four years ago in, in, as I drive around the area near the cabin. Is there like, is it just me or is like... Pence, I know everyone talks about this, and this is something that came up a lot in impeachment, but like Pence fucking terrifies me. Like in a way that like like at least I kind of can understand the impulses and, and like motivations of like Trump and they seem completely narcissistic and everything else. And like all of the all of the DSM five and everything else, but like Pence and his like calling his wife by mother is like this hearkening back to this era that I thought was mostly dead and we'd stomped on and it was dead, dead, dead. And like, he kind of, it's like, I mean, and this is coming up from a, like, I grew up as a Republican conservative. Like I understood that these things existed. I cannot, like some of the stuff that he does, I'm just like, I'm, it's just, it's really scary to me. Is no one else as scared of him as I am? Also, he can talk. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I have to say. I mean, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm a European secular Jew, you know, religion is, 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 is not in my, in, 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 in my blood. And, um, you know, Jürgen Habermas once said he's religiously unmusical. That's certainly true of me. Um, So, uh, so, 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 you know, understanding something like Mike Pence doesn't come naturally to me. It's a very different milieu. Having said that, I think there's two reasons why it doesn't scare me particularly. The first is that I've always found, you know, the huge popularity of A Handmaid's Tale to be very strange. I mean, it's a wonderful novel and it's a great TV show. But the it's idea... not that wonderful a novel. 
Sorry. It's just like okay, not that well off. written. Like, like but, I don't love it. I think it's, I know I'm going to about- get like hate mail for this as a feminist, but I'm like, meh. Like, this is also I mean, how I feel about Hunger Games. Right. So I, I, opinions about Margaret Atwood aside, we'll, we'll leave it aside. But it's just the idea that that's where the United States has had it was always absurd to me. I mean, the United States is not a Nat Flanders kind of country. That Nat Flanders is in the United States. But the United States is, is, is not going to be that. And I can see how perhaps in, you know, the first uh, uh, term of George W. Bush, but, you know, you could have had that fierce liberals and so on. I think today it's just, I just don't buy that. And that's not what's true around here either, right? I mean, when you are in, in Trump country and so on, people aren't, um, you know, they're religious, a lot of them, and, 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 and they have very different values from, you know, progressives on college campuses. But the idea that what they actually want is a kind of handmaid's tale kind of world is just, I, I don't buy it for one moment. Um, uh, and then I have to say that I prefer somebody, and my Pence obviously has been deeply complicit with Trump, so I'm not, uh, I'm not exactly talking about him, but I prefer somebody uh, whose religious convictions are very different from mine, who's much more conservative about important social issues than mine, even somebody who um, doesn't share my conceptions of what some fundamental rights are, as long as they uh, respect the political system and as long as they don't try to concentrate power in their own hands, as long as they have some reverence for the US Constitution. And the reason is not that the things they do might be less bad in the short run. Uh, The reason is that that assures me of my ability to argue against them and mobilize against them and vote them out at the next election and make sure that to the extent possible, we undo some of those damages. Um, and in that sense, um, you know, the, 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 the evangelical Christian far right, uh, sort of socially far right uh, parts of the Republican Party don't scare me nearly in the kind of way that the national populist uh, parts of it do. I completely agree with Yasha. I, I feel like Mike Pence is a species of conservative that has existed my entire life in roughly the same proportion. And I, it's not something that it's like something I feel like I grew up with under, under the Reagan administration with the, with the moral majority folks and, and, you know, it was the Tom DeLay faction of which, of which Mike Pence was a part. It's just been this kind of constant stream of American religious right conservatism. Pence and I don't. Yeah, it's a very consistent stream of, 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 of American political life. It's one that I have almost no sympathy for, but I'm also, uh, I, I don't feel like is new or threatening in a novel way. Whereas I, I think its deal with Trumpism is profoundly new and and um, and different from anything I've ever seen before, and much much scarier. Could I just so, I want to address uh, two points that people made in the questions? Because I want to acknowledge them. The first that somebody is saying that uh, US tests per million so far under two hundred, and the UK is over four hundred. I haven't looked that up myself, but um, uh, but if that's right, then I was, I was certainly wrong about the comparative death rates earlier. And the other is that I want to qualify somebody's making the right point that. Uh, the question whether a couple million dead bodies are a reasonable price to pay for uh, setting aside a populist government. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, my biggest motivation over the last uh, few years has been to make sure that we resist populist governments and that we make sure that somebody like Donald Trump 
doesn't have a chance to do even deeper damage to um, uh, our system of government here in the United States, which has to entail getting him out of the White House um, uh, in the fall of 2020. But a lot of the reason for that was that I really feared the kind of terrible impact he could have on the lives of ordinary people. And right now in this pandemic, um, we are seeing an existential moment um, in which literally our decisions will determine uh, whether hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions live or die. So I am hoping um, uh, to the bottom of my heart that the federal government manages to mount an effect. Did we lose? Uh, we did. We'll to do that. And so as I'm deeply pessimistic about um, the U.S. managing to avoid sorry, deaths, um, I'm 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 optimistic, quote unquote, about the ability to 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 get Trump out of the White House. But I'd much rather that we have an effective response to the pandemic, without a doubt. All right. Um, we uh, lost you for a couple seconds there, Yasha, um, but I think we got the gist of that. Um, we need to use the last few minutes of the show to plan this week's show. Uh, so you are more than welcome to hang around for that and plan the show with us if you like, uh, or if you prefer to drop off and uh, wander off into the woods, you're of course welcome to do that as well. Um, I want to see how you're, how you're planning your show. So I'll leave you to that and, and, and okay. hang out. So yeah. Kate, uh, what are we doing this week? We had pugilism week, and then we had our star-studded week culminating with Yasha's presence. What are we doing this week? Um, well, I have a bunch of people. I've lost my, I lost my sheet. It's like over my notebook I left in the other room, but um, then I keep track of everything. But um, I was thinking that because this is a big week for social media, um, in particular the oversight board for Facebook, um, <clears throat> that it would be fun to kind of check in with with journalists, with media, um, with kind of people in communications and kind of do something um, on that. Emily Bell, who is the uh, director of the Tau Center of Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School, uh, would love to be on. She says our podcast is the um, the cool kids podcast of the COVID crisis. So I'm 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 that. Well, anybody who says that, she that sold me on that. You an invitation, yeah. Suck up. I know, right? <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> um, so nobody so, who says I'm going bald, by the way, gets on the show. Nicole Goldberg. Wait, so, um, so, so if I so if I, so if I call you bald, uh, I, I don't have to come back on. <laughs> no, because I'll know you're faking it. Just to spite Nicole Goldberg, I may grow out my hair. That's very um, bold. I mean, well, we'll see. I so I don't have. I have like to, I have to do a little thinking. I kind of wanted to run this by you, but in our tradition of not talking about stuff kind of off screen, I didn't do a lot of planning specifically because I wanted to see what you thought. So if you're kind of cool with that, then we can talk about it as the show evolves. But I'd love to start with Emily on Monday. Um, I have a few other people. Um, John Chernin, who is a friend of mine also from college, um, and is a writer, is a, um, writer and editor in Hollywood. Um, he has written for, um, oh my God, um, Sunny, uh, 
Philadelphia. What is the, oh my God, I'm really screwing it up. What is this show? Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He wrote that. He was like one of the writers on the show. He was a writer on Deadwood. He's really great. Um, I kind of was just, I'm just kind of fascinated to know what is happening to all of the content um, that people are so thirsty for because they're trapped at home. But at the same time, you cannot actually have like movie sets and things like that. So like a lot of things have been canceled. Um, so I'd kind of like to have John on one of these days. Um, That's uh, a great idea. Yeah. I and also then, think we should have, um, uh, uh, so we have a request from Allison to bring Nicole Turner-Lee on. She's uh, one of my Brookings colleagues who was on the Lawfare podcast uh, yesterday, I believe, talking about 5G. Uh, I, I can shoot Nicole a note uh, along with her co-author on the piece they were talking about, uh, they were writing a piece about, uh, they wrote a paper about 5G rollout and did a, did a, a very interesting podcast, which we, we, could, uh, we could follow up with them or with Nicole alone about. Um, um, yeah, that sounds great. And then we could, I was also thinking that like for, for Wednesday, which may or may not be a big day uh, that I'm not allowed to talk about technically, uh, that we could have Nicole Wong, um, former uh, counsel for YouTube and Google and yeah, and Alex, Alexander McElvray, who is the former general counsel for, for Twitter uh, on the show together. They're friends. Uh, we've all been at like dinner together. They're wonderful people. And I would just love to hear on Wednesday what they're thinking about kind of the forward thinking, um, what the news has like tipped them towards on like thinking about the forward thinking. Which news is that, Kate? I can't say technically Ben, I got yelled at already. Um, but like, uh, anyways, so like Nicole, so like, that sounds great. We've got Emily, Nicole and John, and then like two, like, and then like, we can mix those up at some point and like put in your Nicole and then, uh, yeah. We'll and then there's out. Nicole Goldberg who keeps like talking about my hair. Um, I'm like, we're very, we, we're very I, heavily on heavy on Nicole's right now. We're very heavy on Nicole's. Is that like an eighties name? What are the, what are the, the what are like, what are the name? I feel like there were eighties names. Like, and then there were like, I swear to God, I'm like starting to work with all of these women who like, I ba I am certain that I would have babysat them at some point because they're all named like Mackenzie and Kendall and Ford and like all of these types of like names. And I'm just like, those aren't names those are like proper nouns like yeah. <laughs> and, and also like there's a there's a um there was a period of naming girls when the sound of the name could easily be misinterpreted as farm equipment you know like I drove my Mackenzie out into the field. And, oh that's a really uh, good I love that what about you know, like the, what about the age of Rebecca's and Barbara's like there's no more of those anymore right like we we only do like heavy lifting machinery now my mom there was a different by country I feel like when I was in college in in uh in Britain everybody was a Rebecca whereas I think Rebecca's here somehow of a different generation there's not as many Rebecca's I can think no of like I have a bunch of Rebecca's tons of them that I grew up with nobody's naming their kids Rebecca I know six people who just named their son August 
also, also Hannah, when like a half generation ago, all women were named Hannah. And Phoebe now, and Sophia. And, and now Olivia. no women are named Hannah. Yeah. Now it's um, all, yeah. But before we recreate the whole, can I recommend two guests? Yeah. So one is Juliette Kayam, who I don't know personally, but we were on a panel together. I think Ben, you were probably there. Oh, um, I know Juliette. Uh, yeah, I think she's excellent. Um, yeah. So, so she'll be good. And then my friend Sam Kappelman, who's the most talented 23-year-old in the world, or perhaps he's 24 <laughs> now or something ridiculous, um, has been doing a, pod a podcast, a newsletter that's quite successful called Cooking in Quarantine, where he both interviews a bunch of chefs, um, uh, but also sort of uh, shares his own cooking experiments. So Can you could give have me a some tips on cutting things. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think we're going to do that. I think like, he could, but it appears to be too late. Recipes and safety tips for, for cake. I bought a chainmail um, glove, Ben. I bought a chainmail glove. After this, I bought it. I bought Kevlar. One. <laughs> Kevlar for you. All right. Um, I think that gives us uh, some stuff to go on. So some people that I need to get on this week Shane, uh, for those of you who have been agitating for Shane, uh, Shane will come on. Uh, and um, uh, also, for those of you who enjoyed uh, uh, my Twitter smackdown with uh, uh, Dan Bongino, I am going to invite him on Twitter to join us on the show. Um, I don't think he'll show up, but you know, I. I was so moved by his concern for my reputation. And, you know, he suggested that I change my name to spare my family more agony. What the fuck is that about? That was so I don't know. weird. It was, was really so weird. weird. Also, EJ I, did such a good job. I just was like, wow, he is so yeah. compelling. Like, I was like, I was just like, it was like, he was so sweet and just kind of like, you're an idiot, please stop. I'm so yeah. happy without you in my life. But <laughs> on the off chance that Dan Bongino wants to join us on In Lieu of Fun, we will of course be more than happy to host him and maybe EJ will join us too. Um, so- um, I have a sign off. You have a sign off? Go for it. Um, I am rethinking, it, but I do think it might still be, I think it's even more my mantra than it's ever been before. Uh, but in light of COVID-19, um, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Um, it's, like, it's like, I Breathe think our mantra them. for today. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. But like, um, I say this also, as Also, like, you know, treat every day as though it were your last and one day you'll be right. Yeah. Oh, yes. Whoa, that's a good... You're not allowed to outdo me with mantras. You already do the intro. But also your intro is way better than my intro would be. I appreciate you just like you... taking that over. No, no, you should take it over anytime. anytime. Oh, I don't, I don't want to do the intro. Like I but just... Are, but are you going to do... Are you going to add every day a little murder hornet section to the intro? Yeah, that sounds fun. Okay. All right. Murder hornets are... Murder hornets are like, or murder we're, we're hornets, down with or maybe it'd just be like something from like something weird in the natural world. That sounds fun. Yeah, or just please, something. Please, like please, please, no more murder hornets. No murder hornets. No Spare murder hornets. Maybe it'll be good news, Ben. Maybe I'll also include good news, like penguins, right. penguins photographed hugging each other in Antarctica. But, 
I'm just warning you all, I'm going to drop Kim Jong-un as soon as we know for sure he's alive, because I don't actually believe in joking about the North Koreans. Um, I hate but, him. Like, I no, no, really, he's really- He's loathsome, and yes. I find North Korea humor <laughs> pretty offensive. But since we were doing a Boris Johnson death watch, that it turned into a general kind of running commentary on what Boris is up to, it kind of made like sense. I still like the Boris Johnson watch, though. I'm fine with yeah, that. No, the Bo but Bojo is, he's good comedy. He and I have one big thing in common, only one, which is that we have both fallen into the Thames. Um, I as a seven-year-old child and he as the mayor of London. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that um, true? I didn't know yes, that. It is true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I fell into the Thames in Oxford and I am not ashamed to admit it. Uh, however much my hair might be receding. Okay, on that I, note. I, whatever, Ben, I'm not just saying this because I'm your friend, but I don't think that you're balding. And actually, I think that like every time I've ever seen you, uh, I'm always shocked that like, I'm like, oh, like that is a great shock of like, of like gray hair. I am, I am comfortable with my hair. I'm actually just feigning this for Nicole's uh, uh, amusement. Uh, not that I've ever met. Can somebody validate me ever about me not balding as that uh, we have that too? <laughs> All right. Thank you, full head of hair, Yasha Monk, um, uh, for joining us. Uh, let's do it again. Kate, it's been a pleasure as always. This is like almost day 40. Um, uh, Are you sick of me yet? No, I'm <laughs> so like down with keeping on doing this as long as we are in quarantine, people. If you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can come hang out with us. Bye, Ben. Bye, Asha. Bye, Bye. guys. <laughs>